It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, musicians the Blair Brothers and film director Jeremy Saunier. This film, it's a genre film. It's supposed to elicit that sort of involuntary response in your nervous system and make you feel terrified. And that lovely feeling of actually being scared by a movie is so rare. But there's a lot about power structure and hierarchy and and in our current political climate. It's like basically who's doing the fighting, why are we so angry at each other, and who's benefiting. And uh, a lot of the marching orders we get from the top don't serve our own interests. And that's kind of, I think, the root of so much of strife. But the whole thing is if we can shed all the ideologies and affiliations and groups and sort of subcultures that divide us, just become people, you know, then you might survive. You might triumph. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave comments for us there or email us at Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral 2, at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave a review over at our page on iTunes. Today, our first show to feature two segments and three guests, as we welcome film director Jeremy Saunier and Will and Brooke Blair, known professionally as the Blair Brothers. The brothers are childhood friends of Saunier's who have scored all three of his features, as well as writing and performing with two popular Philadelphia bands over the past decade and a half, the hip-hop group Infectious Organisms and the dreamy pop-rock group East 100. The third Blair brother, Mason Blair, was the lead in Sanye's 2014 breakthrough film Blue Ruin, playing the haunted murderer at its center, and he has had supporting roles in both Sanye's first film, 2007's Murder Party, a gore satire about young artists in Brooklyn, as well as Sanye's latest, The Green Room. The Green Room puts Sanye's nuanced work before wide audiences for the first time, as the film is being marketed to young audiences as a seat-clutching thriller. It succeeds admirably on that level, helped immeasurably by performances by a top-flight set of actors, including Anton Yelchin of Jim Jarmusch's vampire pick Only Lovers Left Alive and Chekhov in the Star Trek reboots, Imogen Poots from Terrence Malick's most recent film Night of Cups, Aaliyah Shawcat of Arrested Development, and the starship commander himself, Patrick Stewart. But there is a shorthand for detail, both physical and emotional, in Sanye's writing and direction that anchors his film's with an unusual sense of authenticity. Sanye discusses that in our conversation as archiving his life. The Green Room's plot draws from Sanye's experience as a frontman for a short-lived punk rock band in his youth, and the story concerns a touring punk group, a 20-something quartet called the Ain't Rights, with three seemingly middle-class white guys and a girl. Their Northwest tour of punk clubs is in mid-collapse, so they're economically forced to take a gig where we're told racist skinheads will be present. It turns out to be a white supremacist bar deep in the woods and owned by Patrick Stewart's character named Darcy Banker. The setup involves tensions flaring during the band's set, and on the way out, while being hustled through to the dark club's back door, a murder is stumbled upon. We'll head into the interview, but first we'll hear a clip where the band first realizes they're being detained when the Man Mountain security guard, Big Justin, wonderfully played by Eric Edelstein, stands in front of the only exit to the club's green room holding a pistol. Alright, he's got six bullets. <laughs> for real? We all go once. Alright, hold off a sec. For what? We haven't done anything! It doesn't matter. Okay. They're called 
cartridges. The bullet is the part that enters your brain if you keep talking shit. And this gun only has five cartridges, not six. Because they're big as fuck and only five fit the cylinder. So please, shut the fuck up and don't test me. You should make it worse. We sit and we wait. And we die. Not if you sit and you wait. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Okay, thanks. Okay. I'm here with Jeremy Saulnier, the uh, director of three features, three fascinating features. I guess you could call them all thrillers, but all with a, a wonderful different tone, uh, each of their own. And his latest film is The Green Room, a thriller shot at an Oregon punk rock club, which really uh, you know, turns up the screws to, uh, to about as high as they can be tightened for this group of young men and, uh, and uh, young women trapped in the back room. Of this club, um, like I, I was, I'm really fascinated by uh, your your films. They uh, each of them deal with with violence and and, and the, sort of, the sort of setup of the thriller, but they're all they're all really different. The first one, Murder Party, you did in 2007. Yep, we is, shot in it. We shot in 06. It came out in 07. Yeah, and that's a, a real kind of a broad, bratty social satire about yeah, sure. art school students that uh, is is a lot of fun and, and really outrageous. Uh, the second film, Blue Ruin, uh, made a made a lot of attention. Twenty thirteen, I think, was the that was the the, uh, the release date was yeah two thousand thirteen. Yeah, and it's a much more somber piece and uh, kind of a mood piece and almost a, a detective film as as he sort of goes from one person to the other, piecing together the uh, the story that's unfolding. And and the latest film really feels I, I kind of think of them as siege thrillers. Yes, uh, you know, absolutely. straw dogs. I guess everything back to uh, Birth of a Nation really has its right. own <laughs> siege scene as well. But uh, I'm I'm curious about about how you how you feel about the changing tone between the between the films that you've well, made. My taste in movies that reflects the, the tone of my own films is cyclical. My, the short film that I made prior to Murder Party is a melancholy, dreamy comedy. You know, it's, it has a certain amount of naturalism to it. And Murder Party was was more just. A, I mean, it stars my high school friends. You know, it's mostly my good buddies on camera. And I did feel, though, that it was a standard definition production. It was a little low rent. And so I didn't want did to Did you try. attend art school? I did. Well, I went to NYU Tisch School of the Arts for film. Okay, because it certainly seems like somebody who, who has experience with art students. I also lived up. in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. There you and go. That, I mean, that was, that, that was what it was about. It was like all these sort of artists in, in the neighborhood and um, living in lofts and just trying to, you know. Do, do their thing, and, and, and some of it got a little out of hand. I, there's a, a, a true story in in Murder Party where uh, actually it has, it's a big reveal as one of the, the main cast members, but my buddy Sandy Barnett, who plays Alexander in in, in, uh, in Murder Party, was crashing at my house for a while in, in Williamsburg. This is back in 1997, 1998. Yeah, and he kind of plays the elder statesman of the artistic yeah. scene there who, who might be giving Grant money. Yeah. And, he might, and he might be somewhat of a fraud. And <laughs> he, he was actually uh, – he had experience as a fry cook. And he was trying to get a day job you know, while he was just to chip in for rent, right? So he goes up and down Bedford Avenue. And he's trying to get he's – like, he has he's a pretty good chef, you know. And he, he was asked more than once, like, are you an artist? He's like, this is, this is for the fry cook position, right? And like, yeah, we want artists. And it was, it was infuriating because, like, he's, he's, he's my buddy. He is an artist, but he wouldn't tell him. Like, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. I'm, a, I'm an actor. He's like, 
you guys are goofballs. Um, so it was a little pushback on that whole mentality. But it's also because I didn't feel that we could fully realize what I wanted to do cinematically, let's go gonzo. Let's make it funny. Let's make fun of ourselves. Let's not take this film too seriously because we don't have the means to, to sort of achieve cinematic perfection. Um, so that tone was driven not only by, like, my love of just, like, horror comedies, but my fear of trying to make something and falling short. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they all um, seem somewhat stunted artists. Yeah. And, but, but Blue Ruin was six years later, so, yeah. like, my tastes have changed. Um, and I thought it would be fun to – because a, a bunch of my uh, – our collective is sort of geared towards comedies. But I felt, yeah, let's, let's try something that's actually – going to expose ourselves more as artists and, and try to make something that seem, seems real and actually emotional and stark and beautiful. And that was, that was not within our comfort zone. In some ways it feels like a very European film that it doesn't explain everything to you and give you a lot of exposition that allows you to be pulled into the story. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, was, it was sort of like our version of an art movie. But also what I wanted to do was introduce Macon Blair as a lead performer. I mean, he's been my buddy for three decades now and it's so hard to get your your break and we gave each other the break he he lent his talents to my movie and i cast him <laughs> um and it worked out fantastically so then i had opportunities that i never dreamt of but what i did was i kind of bridged the gap between murder party and blue ruin with with green room this still satisfies my sort of adolescent love of genre filmmaking um, it's not tongue in cheek. It's it's deadly serious, but 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 it, it sort of elicits that the fun of being terrified. Um, but it also has sort of stark emotional tone to it in some parts. And I think it is sort of a trilogy. It's it's the it's not the color trilogy as people want it to be. Uh, it's the breaking through trilogy. It's the how do you, how do we, how the hell do we make movies? And how do we finally archive the again the decades we've been trying trying to break through and all the music we loved, all the, the films that influenced us and and why we sort of started this in the first place. And I think Green Room is a great culmination of that. It's it's admittedly, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of regre- regression emotionally from Blue Ruin. And I embraced that because I needed to archive, like Blue Ruin was my sort of breakthrough film and according to the industry, my first film. Um, but I had to somehow, I guess, shake out all of this stuff I had in me and, and, and purge this adolescent love and, and archive you know, all my influences uh, before I could move on uh, to, to, to other, other projects. Yeah, uh, the one thing, that, the thread that does go through all the films is, is a great sense of authenticity, a great sense of reality. And being someone who played in bands and played in clubs as well, it, there's a real incredible sense of, of this is a, is a real space and this is a, a you know a real place. I thought for sure that you'd found the perfect location and yeah. and uh, and figured out how to accentuate uh, you know all the all the pieces of it. But it was actually filmed on a, on a soundstage. Yeah. yeah, it was it was it was all built. At the script phase, which was hard because we couldn't find an existing venue. Uh, it needed to be remote. It needed to sit in a certain sort of geography just so it looks right. I mean, and we found this amazing sort of uh, this building that was part of a, a log cabin manufacturer. But it was, of course, didn't work in as far as the interiors. And the lesson was... No, let's spend the money. Let's let's actually do my like world building because we needed to custom fit the 
location that we that we would build from scratch to fit every line of the script. And that way, the translation of this from script to screen was was a lot easier. And I had I had already thought about choreography and blocking and where props would be and how, how the catch couch had to, had to be with sort of positioned within the room and how that door. I, mean, I was thinking about that door and like the entryway and the hallways for seven months. So to, to then Did you look through blueprints of buildings to, to get a sense of... No, I built it sort of bit by bit in my yeah. head. Just based on, I mean, I've been to so many rock clubs, and I kind of knew how I wanted it to lay out. And th- so, yeah, so once we went to the expense of, of building it, uh, then it was the texturing, and, and we, had, we had a production designer, Ryan Smith, who was really on it. And uh, a lot of people on the film had, had also had experience in the punk or hardcore scene. So it was, it was in good hands, but it had to be custom fit to the script otherwise i'd have to do an entire rewrite and i, and I would be lost in my own world if, if we didn't have it you know line up physically how i needed it to each of the films has, a, has an incredible sense of place uh from the first film you really get the, these beautiful montages of brooklyn mm-hmm. and the second film uh, that, that sort of virginia area there by virginia beach and everything i've spent time in you really capture that as well and and this film captures the the northwest uh, uh, what is your thought on on uh, bringing you know the entire landscape into into your films? I, I certainly lean towards visual storytelling, and so the environment plays a key role in, in anything I do. Um, and bl- for Blue Ruin, it was actually you know making and I making a laundry list of available locations, you know things in the family. There's a there's an estate East Hundred uh, outside of Charlottesville that that. His, his cousins had property on um, a big night invasion sequence in Blue Ruin takes place in, the, in my childhood home. It's actually Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, primarily for, uh, for the for the beach setting. My sister lives in Rehoboth as well. Yeah, so so these are places that we vacationed. We both vacationed for decades. So it's it's the, the usual like filmmakers retreat to their home turf to make movies, and that that, that was custom built into the script of Blue Ruin. And so environment was as as important as anything else. Um, and after Murder Party, which is in a Brooklyn warehouse primarily, I would sworn off ever doing an enclosed scenario with an ensemble cast ever again. But because of the scenario green room, you know, you have an out-of-town band trapped inside uh, this backstage holding area during a live concert, I had to do it. I had to go back into the room, and I was <laughs> not looking forward to it. Um, but to complement that sort of claustrophobic, like airtight feel you get, uh, within most of Green Room, we had the lush Oregon environment. We had outside of Portland, Oregon, we just shot uh, a lot of different geography. Like we, we kind of we hit cornfields and and mountains and rainforests and um, coastal highways. So it was really about again, if you're going to shoot somewhere, you really got to mine it and and for all it's worth, and not, yeah. not just spend all your time in locked in a room. <laughs> I was looking through a lot of the press that you've done already. For green room, and and one thing you touch on that, that seemed to, to capture people in the, in the comments section of the, I think it was a, a, an AV piece for the Onion, was uh, kind of about the economic uh, undercurrents of the film and sort of what it says about America. And I was thinking that it's it's really uh, this small artistic collective, the, the the band, which is struggling when you first meet them. They're actually stealing gas to get across town. They're yeah. they're not really a very economically viable engine. Mm-hmm. Who really meets this incredibly well greased, well oiled machine in the in the sort of white supremacist enclave there? Uh, what do you think about those sort of two economies coming together and uh, and uh, what it might say about America? Oh sure, I mean. I, there's actually it's funny like this film 
when, when you when you first sit down and experience it, um, it's a genre film. I mean, it is supposed to be experiential. It's supposed to elicit that sort of involuntary response in your nervous system and make you feel terrified. And that lovely feeling of actually being scared by a movie is so rare. But unlike any other of my movies, it has a lot more messaging in it. And so I don't go too in-depth because some of it's quite literal and if you, if you highlight it too much. But there's a lot about um, just, I think it's a lot about power structure and hierarchy and in and, and our current political climate. Not so much the ideology, but it's like basically who's doing the fighting, why are we so angry at each other, and who's benefiting. And uh, a lot of the marching orders we get from the top um, don't serve our own interests, and that's kind of, I think, the root of so much of strife. And I was definitely, um, you know, and of course we got Nazi bad guys and Nazi skinheads, um, <laughs> but the, the thing is I wasn't you know, really trying to worry about vilifying that ideology. Yeah, I, I think there might it's be maybe only one line that mentions race at all in the film yeah. that I remembered, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's really about, it's about hierarchy and power structure and, and you know, and youth and wealth. So, yeah, yeah it, it's all there for sure, and I think it's for the second and third viewing. And uh, but it's for, funny, I, I feel like the, the, the band, the sort of art collective is very, is, is, is much, is very ineffectual <laughs> trying to get out of yeah. the situation where the, uh, the yeah. other uh, side forms right into sort of a, a, a war stance. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, and it's very hard to fight back. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to mount an attack, you know. And it, but if the whole thing is, if we can shed all the ideologies and affiliations and groups and, and sort of subcultures that divide us and just become people, you know, then you might survive. You yeah. might you might triumph. Is there any, any character I wanted to know more about? It was Imogene. Uh, Imogene Poots. Imogene yeah. Poots. Yeah. That uh, her her history, you know, being connected with these white supremacists and yet becoming a you know a more. Uh, uh, relatable character is fascinating, and and, and uh, it just points to a lot of depth that is is right underneath. I, I was thinking too about these films; all really have an incredible sense of authenticity, and it's something that uh, that I really look for. And it seems in, in short supply. It seems like a lot of filmmakers are drawing from other films, but uh, you wonder whether the filmmakers have been to real places and had real experiences yeah. themselves. You know, but but each of these films really has an incredible sense of. Uh, of, of reality that, that, that sets them apart. But uh, uh, you were blessed having a childhood friend like Macon. Uh, he's uh, uh, you know, a leading man to me. There's something about For his sure. eyes and everything that's uh, incredibly, uh, uh, incredibly uh, you know, captivating. But, and this is the first film which you really pulled in a lot of uh, you know, very schooled, top-of-the-line professional actors. Was, did you think a lot about making sure that you could find an authentic place for the people that are in Star Trek and on television and, yeah, and I mean, everything. I, I'm kind of an ignoramus when it comes to who's who and, and what films they've been in. I don't watch a ton of movies now. I'm just so busy trying to get my own off the ground. So it, I think I, I'm able to cast on merits of acting and enthusiasm for the project. That's the big thing for me is what I've learned growing up making movies with people like Macon Blair is is their investment in the, in the movie, their their enthusiasm is essential to to sort of replicate what we had growing up you know there was no business uh, savvy there was no division of labor there was no credit being shared it's it's, just, it's just a big amorphous blob of creativity and we just sort of the lawyers were going to get, to get together and decide yeah. where the credits we went didn't at the do end. deals we just made <laughs> movies and and everyone wanted to be there it was all volunteer you yeah. know um so 
to preserve some 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 part of that. I, I just I vet people for genuine enthusiasm, and so I, yeah. I'm very protected with this highly professional, experienced cast with a lot of star power to it. You know, I think I'm not trying to, to be like oh, I don't care about that. I, I respect that, but that's not my job to care about. That's the financiers and the, and the business people to worry about who's worth what. I'm just worried about my experience on set and, and who who am I going to put my faith and trust into and and who's going to put their faith and trust into me and so when when that overlaps when you get people who are worth a certain amount that also um, really can inhabit the characters and bring the authenticity and dedication that I need then it's a no-brainer and that's how we have the green room cast what is what is your directing style with 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 actors there's there's a lot of talk about it technically because they're they're such beautifully crafted machines your films with that sort of Hitchcock level of uh, springing traps and everything but your your work with actors is rarely mentioned and and you you get such great performances well it's the the script is first and foremost we say real tight to the script usually um, and the actors respond to that and that they get it and when they they can go on tape or or we we talk about it and, and if they get it then they get it and there's very little work for me to do now, with green room, it, there's so much like minutia and, and, and throwaway dialogue. That, that do they have any experience like, themselves with punk rock or bands? Do you think? Some do, yeah, yeah. But they, they, you know, they're, they're great, and they're cast because they just they seem right and real, like people I know, and not. It wasn't the hardcore contest to be who's the toughest and meanest. You know that that comes later. Um, but but for me, it's about like just finding people who who are authentic and have an amazing craft, and then letting them do their, their best work. And as far as my directing style, it is very technical, but uh, I, I cast people who are great, and I trust them to be caretakers of their own character, characters. Um, but what I am there is every step of the way is I tell them the story beats that we need to hit. I don't tell them exactly how to say their lines or how to play it um, as far as like, no, I'd rather this, or I'll, I'll do general, like, g- general statements like, this needs to be more surreal, this is a quiet build up to this, but usually it's like story beats and marching orders. Like because green room, if you look on the page, like a lot of the dialogue seems haphazard and, and like sort of impulsive and nonsensical. But you put it all together, yeah. You know, there's a lot of subtext and emotional charge behind everything that makes it seem like you are watching something really authentic unfold and unplanned and not designed. And that way it throws people off and they're like, oh, these are real people and they're behaving like real humans. And, oh, wait, someone just died. They're dispatched unceremoniously and it is terrifying and, and holy shit, the rug is pulled out from underneath and now we are in a new kind of movie and I'm scared shitless. <laughs> Speaking about a new kind of movie, it, it's great that uh, sort of success in the horror genre has allowed a, a, a film that feels very personal like this to to get made and, and, and pushed through. But I, I feel three films into your career, I'm still not sure what kind of filmmaker you are or which direction you're headed. I was I was wondering, is there ever going to be a Jeremy Selney film that doesn't have a, a crime committed in it? No. <laughs> um, you, I mean, you, you should watch Crab Walk. I, I'm, I'm hoping to re-release that. We, we have some uh, music that we cannot license in it um, but it's a totally different movie and actually there's a bunch of scripts that we never got off the ground that are, that are quite different in tone yeah um, and so yeah I'll definitely flex new muscles going forward and the key is like I, I don't want to try and hit the same note over and over I want to yeah. I want to keep audiences guessing and I want to keep myself engaged and excited so that means 
trying new things. Being being a, a fan of film history, can you look back at a, you know, maybe directors of the past whose you know careers you would admire in the, in their scope and in their well, I mean, it's mostly recent history as far as like post studio system, you know. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as far as careers, Coen Brothers, Soderbergh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, people who can retain control and really make great movies. And, and I think the main thing I'm trying to do is build a library. And there's a there's a, a lot of pressure when you make movies to make a buck right away. And I think if films can live and, and thrive for decades, you know, I, I'm also in the business of filmmaking, but I think it's a much smarter sort of long-term game, game plan. It's to build a solid library that over time will be remembered. Um, and so as long as I can keep ideas that are sort of somewhat original or fresh. Also, um, I would love to try jumping on a studio movie and just directing. Yeah. It would be, it'd be like a vacation. You know, these, these are like two or three-year journeys for me when I go from script to screen and, and push, push it uphill all the way. Um, now, of course, it's a lot easier um, than it was. Are you, are you committed to, to, to continuing on as a screenwriter? Uh, eventually, yeah. It's, it's my favorite part of the process. Yeah. And I, and I didn't consider myself a screenwriter until I had to kind of make a movie. And uh, my, my buddies were making, were, were writing amazing scripts, but they were just far too out of our budget range. So I was like, I'm making Murder Party. Like, you guys are all in it. Here we go. It's people in a room. Let's murder each other and have a good time doing it. Um, and same with Blue Ruin. It was just like I wrote it to totally embrace all limitations and, and utilize available resources from the script phase. That why, that's why it was, I think, so successful is because people, people saw it wasn't the usual indie that was terribly translated from an amazing vision to the harsh reality of production in the sub-million dollar you know, budget range. It was built from the ground up with a laundry list of things and cars and locations that we already had so it was a hundred percent like true translation of the script because all the limitations were embraced and built in from the very beginning. Economically, I've heard such struggles with uh, filmmakers that were making independent films. Do you, do you think you could continue on at the scale of a Blue Ruin economically in, in today's motion picture world? Yes, I, that is because now I know how it works. Um, if you know famous people, uh, you can get them to come to your movies. Uh, you can still spend a little bit of money and then sell it for a lot, <laughs> but it's the sales price is still low. But if you if you can do it for for a dime and and treat people like they're investors and, and give them good back end deals, you can make a shit ton of money. Um, but that's not really the goal. That's that, that's the goal. It's like to just to not have to succumb to the pressures of sure. pre selling movies. That's a big deal. I think that's why I would love to do studio film and, and do something in the mid-range budget just to see, engage the market and see how it works. Because sometimes with some independent budgets, you get more of a squeeze than studios. Because uh, studios need to spend a certain amount of money to trigger development deals and spend a lot of more, a lot more money on distribution and P&A. So I'm kind of gauging what's, what's out there. But the key is as long as I can tell f- stories that I think are really, that I respond to on, on like a DNA level, yeah. Um, I don't. I'll do it for hundred million dollars or hundred thousand dollars, and just so Soderbergh's a good example as far as he defined flexibility. I mean, he made the DGA and other unions break their own rules to keep him on board. He insisted, like, no, I'm going to do Aaron Brockovich and and uh, Ocean's Eleven, and then I'm going to go do this oddball movie with for two hundred grand. 
and you're going to come with me. So knowing that there's an option, if, if you go too big, you can always retreat. Uh, I'll write a movie from my hometown and get making Blair, if he's still available, um, and keep rocking and rolling. What, what do you think the modern story in Brooklyn for you is right now? It's hard because it's so nice. It's like someone's on the way to get iced coffee, and a dog poops, and the owner does not clean up the poop, and holy moly. I don't even know what to do in Brooklyn anymore. You know, I'd have to explore it. I think maybe Brooklyn at night could be fun. I think there's a lot of cool, scary things lurking there. But Brooklyn during the day is just, again, it's Epcot Center now, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for, uh, for coming and speaking to us. My pleasure. So that's our conversation with Jeremy Saunier. It was held here in Philly in a downtown hotel boardroom. One of those press junkets where you're rushed in for 20 minutes while the next reporter is waiting outside. Not really the ideal setting for the sort of loose, far-ranging conversations Fundano likes to feature. Although Sanye was on his game and really ready to engage. Also present that day were the Blair Brothers, who provide an unnerving, foreboding score to the green room. Rather than pepper them for a tight 15 minutes, I invited them to appear live the following week on the weekly radio show I host at WPRB in Princeton. In that more casual atmosphere, we discussed their film work, but also their history and a pair of bands who labored gainfully in Philly clubs and beyond. The first was Infected Organisms, a live hip-hop band that toured incessantly and played on bills with The Roots, Outkast, Modesky, Martin and & Wood, and faithfully, as we'll hear, The Black Eyed Peas. The band featured Jean-Baptiste, a songwriter and producer who has gone on to work with Rihanna, Nicki Minaj, Macy Gray, and more. The Blair Brothers next formed East 100 with singer and songwriter Beryl Gucheri, releasing a number of EPs and a full-length passenger in 2009. East 100's music was heard on MTV and Showtime's The L Word before they broke up in 2012. Since then, the Blair Brothers have made a go as a soundtrack team, composing music for the documentary Killing Them Safely and the forthcoming thriller Live Cargo. We talked in the studios of WPRB, and once again, thanks to the station. Let's head over to that interview. And I'm here with the Blair Brothers, Will and Brooke. Uh, I just talked to them uh, last week because they're part of a new film that is opening up this Friday called The Green Room. It's directed by Jeremy Saulnier, who is a, uh, a childhood friend of the Blair Brothers, and they've worked on all three of his films, which are, which are quite fantastic uh, thrillers, all very different. The first, Murder Party. The second one, Blue Ruin, which uh, got a wild acclaim for uh, a real nail-biter, really expertly crafted uh, thriller. And uh, and the latest one, The Green Worm, they, they, they uh, specialize in... Uh, uh, a certain unnerving uh, drone uh, among their uh, their bag of tricks, and we're excited to have the Blair Brothers here. Good good afternoon. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, so, did you get to go on the set of the Green Room at all? I wondered. We did not. Um, that is a luxury that we often don't get to. On a lot of films we work on, we're just sort of brought on in the middle of that process or at the end of that process, and. Surprisingly, Green Room took off pretty quick. You know, right after Blue Ruin, Jeremy had a script kind of ready to go, and casting seemed to be a hurdle, but they got through it pretty quick, and they were shooting within a year, under a year of Blue Ruin coming out. So he was pretty consecutive with this 
with his projects. Um, we were fortunate to get a copy of the screenplay, pick Jeremy's brain. He could share ideas with us about the story in the movie, and it's always exciting. We get still photos, you know, cell phone pics from, from the set and the production as they're filming. So um, we kept up with the production in that way, but we did not get to go on set. Yeah, yeah it's an incredible story. As I said, it's coming out Friday. It's about a band that ends up uh, playing a gig for a white supremacist uh, group in Portland, Oregon, and ends up uh, being held hostage in the uh, in the green room by violent uh, white supremacists. And uh, it's a pretty impressive piece of work. It stars Anton Yelchin of uh, the Star Trek uh, reboots. And uh, what's her name, Aaliyah from uh, Arrested Development, uh, a fantastic cast, and Patrick Stewart, the the uh, uh, commanding quite a different ship in this <laughs> in this film as the uh, the head of the the white supremacists. It's a it's a fascinating film, and uh, yeah, truly uh, recommend you checking it out. Um, one of the great sounds in the film, which really took me home uh, to uh, my days in punk clubs is that sound of the band thrashing wildly on the other side of like a of a of a cinder block wall and it almost seems like you know there's a there's a tonality there that uh, that is uh, something you worked with uh, coming up with the the sounds for this film yeah <laughs> well i mean it's uh, the, the tonalities of of that club and that place or almost abstracted, it feels like in, in your soundtrack. Yeah, in fact, that that um, that was one aspect of the film that we had to kind of work with and work around. Um, all the bass coming through the walls was a huge element that was kind of there for the first two thirds of the film that we had to kind of work with, and that kind of took up a lot of space in the low end. So one thing that we devised to to kind of cut through that was to work with feedback. Um, so we recorded about a day's worth of, of feedback in the studio and chopped up those sounds and built basically like playable virtual instruments from the feedback. And uh, we could, you know, lay it across a MIDI keyboard and compose that way. And, the, you know, we were basically working with sounds that were, you know, chromatic in a sense, but they were also very unruly and, and kind of out of control. And they would detune and kind of swerve around and do things that were unexpected. And that was one way that we kind of cut through some of that some of that low bass frequencies that came through the wall and that that almost serves as like as like the low end of the score in a way and then when we move outside of the club we keep that going with a whole another uh set of sounds for for to keep the tension going and then we move the score moves into the low end and we bring in a bunch of pulses and low percussion so like there's this fluidity between the whole thing but um you know it should feel like something's always kind of something's always coming surging, and, yeah, yeah surging you don't know what's next um, and a little bit out of control, but there's some consistency between the whole thing. It all feels of one world. And if I, yeah, and if our underscore pr primarily was creating and sustaining kind of uncomfortable tension, on sort of a surreal, subliminal level, like you mentioned, that the rock and roll and the, and the punk rock and the metal that is pumping through the room and the next door, that in and of itself is pretty tense. Also, it's just uncomfortable. It's something you kind of want to stop, or, <laughs> or um, something you want to break from, and it. it, it um, keeps you on edge a little yeah. bit more. It's one of Jeremy's many tools. And in and, and the past, the bands you've been in, uh, Will has played the drums and percussion, and and Brooke is the guitar player. Do you still sort of hold those uh, those places when you're when you're working on these soundtracks? We've had to let them go, <laughs> but if we can, if we're if we're invited to, but oftentimes we don't. Yeah, or we just try to sneak them in when we can. You know, as, as little flourishes. And in this film, there's a little bit of percussion. Um, 
So we'll got to do some of that. And there, there are some, some moments of bowed guitar and some feedback and distorted moments of guitar, but nothing overtly that reads as a guitar or a drum set, per se. No, there's no, there's no guitar stings, no 80s guitar stings <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> I would have loved to have done that, but we're up for that. This is just yeah. a fit. <laughs> I was listening to uh, the Fripp Eno No Pussy Footing uh, this weekend, and that made me think of you know the way guitars can be used in, in much more of a, an atmospheric textural. quality. Textural, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. um, are, do you play other instruments as well? Are you multi-instrumentalists? Yeah, I'd say what we find ourselves doing now is, uh, I guess being a drummer uh, um, and the piano part of the percussion family, I drifted towards that as maybe a secondary instrument. And then from there, started to explore keyboards and synthesizers and malleted percussion marimbas and vibes and things like that I studied in college, where sort of yeah, percussive elements meet melodic elements. That's fun for me. And Brooks has been string things from you know guitar, bass, banjo, and anything wound up. Yeah, you know, and a lot of a lot of the, um, the scores that we work on, we do try to you know sneak a lot of that stuff in there, and then kind of blur the lines of where the origin of the, the actual instrument, uh, what you're actually hearing, you know. So you're not you're not drawn to oh that's a ma mandolin or a you know bow dulcimer or something. It's we, we've affected things and morphed them a bit and kind of uh, obscured the the origin of the sound, and so a lot of that ends up being a more production-based approach to some of the scores we work on. Uh, well, let's give an example. I do have the uh, the Green Room soundtrack here, and the opening cut uh, Weapons Ready seems to, to move along at a, at a yeah. clip more than uh, than uh, some of the more other sort of, uh, you know, more surging uh, droney yeah. pieces. A uh, beautiful piece of work, and this reminds me of John Carpenter. Is that influence in there anywhere? Uh, of course. A filmmaker and a composer that we grew up with, but also, you know, Jeremy Sonnier is a big fan of his films and his scores. And this was an early experiment we did for the film that made it into the end credits, which which did allow, actually, for a lot of percussion and bass, um, some more familiar elements for us.
What what year did you move to to Philadelphia actually? Two thousand one, the um, the August before nine eleven. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So, and you were in a couple bands that really uh, had a, a lot of ambition and uh, a lot of promise. You were in the the group Infectious Organisms, a mm-hmm. uh, really wonderful sort of uh, trip hoppy hip hop group with uh, two fantastic uh, frontmen, uh, Jean Baptiste and uh, Felton Martin. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few years passed from there, and in 2004, maybe, uh, you got together with East 100, uh, a, a very different band, a, a, a sort of. Uh, I don't know, indie rock, uh, to my ears, uh, being an, uh, you know, an older guy, they uh, kind of remind me a little bit of the Sundays. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah I've gotten that before we... European band. You have a wonderful, you had a wonderful uh, female vocalist. Burrell. Burrell Gutierrez. Burrell Gutierrez. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, both those bands seemed like, you know, they could have been headed to, uh, you know, the upper strata. And uh, it's interesting that uh, your biggest release so far is uh, the soundtrack works with uh, just you, you two brothers together rather than, uh, you know, standing behind uh, front men. Has, uh, has uh, this, this, is the soundtrack world, uh, you know, opening up for you now, I would, I would imagine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a big year for us was uh, 2013 when Blue Ruin was released, and like you said, that got a lot of critical acclaim, and the phones rang a little bit more frequently, and, and we got some other work and, and started to really take this on full time, and... Um, thus far, a lot of people have come to us for that sort of sound, um, the more atmospheric, ambient approach to film scores, as well as the tension. So those are two things I think we've we've been able to to do quite a bit, and just now getting to kind of explore outside of those those boundaries with some of the newer films we're working on. Do you um, have your own studio that you you do this work in? We do. We have a small production studio in Fishtown, right in Philadelphia, sort of. And it's a great neighborhood. You know, Brian McTeer's Minor Street Studio is, is half a mile from us. Some other buddies have great rooms, each that has sort of a different sound or a different set of gear. So we actually branch out in the neighborhood, a little network of studios that we um, pop into, you know, if the project calls for it. But, yeah, I think, I think, like you said, we've been pleasantly surprised that we've been consistently so busy with film work. I think if you asked the 10-year-ago version of ourselves, we, we would have thought that if we were to... I don't want to say make it, but if we were to um, find more sustainability, it would have been with one of our touring recording band projects because that's everything we did. It was kind of the only thing we allowed time for. And and in a lot of ways, we got close, you know, and we had we had different levels of success. But um, we wouldn't have guessed maybe that this would be as consistent and sort of fruitful for us yeah. um, in the past kind of, few years. It kind of happened organically as well, right, when East 100 was wrapping up. Pretty much, literally, the month that we played our last show, we started work on Blue Ruin. So it was, you know, natural pr- progression into this. And uh, while we were playing in bands, we were doing short films and student projects along the way, just kind of filling in the gaps. Um, so it was something that was fun for us and a different sort of collaboration. But as far as thinking of it as a career, yeah, it wasn't really the end goal. The goal was always to like get a record record deal and just be on the road constantly and release albums. And but even even Murder Party when Jeremy came to us and we were excited about the idea of film work we were open to the pursuit of film work but it just wasn't prioritized and i remember we had to sort of the band east hundred at the time was busy and we had to convince our our collaborators that 
give us two weeks. We're get, there's this. We're not going to quit. We there's this really intense guy coming down from New York City, and we just have to focus on his movie for a couple weeks because um, we're not quite sure what we're doing, and um, it's going to be a lot of work. And and they were supportive, but I remember it was challenging but fun. But I remember as we wrapped up that movie, we just sort of our focus went back to the band world, and uh, and now our focus is, is pretty clearly on this. Do you, do you have any other uh, projects coming up you can talk about, or film-wise? Yeah. Um, yes, I think the other day when we met you, we mentioned Live Cargo. That'll be then. Uh, well, don't quote me on the release. We're not sure. It just premiered at the uh, uh, Tribeca Film Festival in New York, on, um, in competition. It's a really cool, uh, moody, kind of atmospheric um, drama, human trafficking drama that follows a small, diverse cast of characters around the Bahamas, and it's shot in black and white. Um, which was a really interesting choice by Logan Sandler, a first-time filmmaker, I, I think, made a great film. And we got to do, um, we got to branch out a good bit. There's sort of religious, implied religious um, undertone to the movie, so we explored church organs and a small choir, and Brooke got to play a good bit of guitar, and I got to do a little percussion and some piano. That's a score we're excited to share, a movie we're excited to share. Let's step back and, and uh, you know, I, I love to get people's origin stories. I, I know that you came out of the uh, Virginia area, Roanoke, was it? Um, Northern Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C., where also Jeremy Sonny grew up. Alexandria? Correct. Grew up in Alexandria, Virginia. And then most of us, the three brothers and a lot of friends, ended up in Richmond, uh, Richmond, Virginia, just 90 miles south at Virginia Commonwealth University, oh, small art school at the time. Yeah. Oh, great. So what were you studying there? What did you go into? I was advertising. <laughs> I actually made it all the way through, but we were pretty much on the road a good bit. How and, come and more people don't know about us then? <laughs> I dropped the ball in that respect. But, uh, yeah, it was almost like we were at college, but we were really playing in, in this band, Infectious Organisms, and we were, we were touring quite a bit. And I, had, I really had to sit down with all my teachers and just let them know, like, this is a source of income, and it's where, I, you know, where my career is going. And they all had to be pretty understanding of that and kind of got through by just barely just really, barely graduated really c minus understanding. Yeah, just good enough <laughs> brooke when did you start playing guitar um i guess my, my dad put put uh, a guitar in my hands when i was in fifth grade maybe and he owned a guitar store right uh, not a store but he just he, he would he had a ton of instruments around the house and and built banjos and dulcimers um i don't know if he ever built the proper guitar well now he yeah restores restore instruments what kind of music did he play uh he kind of just like picked around on maybe more folky stuff yeah there's Um, a big bluegrass scene i know in in that area a lot of irish stuff Mm -hmm. um he got into with the he went through a bagpipe Penny whistle phase. <laughs> he's, he's had several phases of, of this or that, which we've always benefited from because now you know now there's this steady flow of 
strange instruments that that come our way and mm-hmm. you know he'll fix he'll find something fix it up and then realize he's you know it's just going to sit somewhere he doesn't know what to do with it and kind of amass this little collection of strange stringed instruments that you know if you take a bow to or or a drumstick or something you can get some interesting sounds out of so that's mm-hmm. stuff that we you know pepper in the scores every well, so often well was your first instrument drums it wasn't i i actually do remember the moment dad pulled the silver tone what, what is it the wash the it's silver tone sear silver tone yeah, yeah from under the bed and, and kind of a legendary guitar yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um See, Brooks' memory, he kind of remembers himself there all by himself, and he had that moment. But it was, <laughs> it was actually a special a sh- moment. Their son was coming. It was a shared <laughs> moment. I rem- we, both, we both met that same guitar at the same time. We both got our first few chords together in those first few weeks. I do remember about six weeks later, you were like playing circles around Dad, and uh, just a, a quick natural learner, and I was you know, a year and a half younger and, and trying to keep up, and realized that Maybe to survive creatively, if I could, like, differentiate a little bit. And at that time, an older cousin was getting rid of an old, junky pair of drums, and they came our way. And uh, I was never interested in one sort of music, one instrument or one approach more than the other. It was more like, let's let's get whatever tools together we can and whatever, whatever other people we can to to start to collaborate. So if that means we need a drummer, then I'll be the drummer. But it wasn't a... a I've drawn to percussion any more than the guitar, so I still get to play a little stringed instrument, but I've just been the the drummer by default for, for years. <laughs> Did you have high school bands and stuff? or Were you together in these bands, really? We were separate at that point. Ah, there was um, some health, healthy competition. Mm-hmm. We would learn together and, and challenge each other at home. But then I think socially, it was probably most appropriate that... And again, he was he was... He was gifted, more gifted. So he was all oh, start with the, with the older kids, uh, and he was the younger guy in the older kids, uh, you know, high school kids band. And I, I gotta I just, think that's gotta be a spark though to have a brother that's uh, that's oh, really it is. gifted. It like sure. Something something to, um, to try to keep up with. So I would put together a similar group of guys in the neighborhood. Um, what what music were you playing? We were we were um, what the. Can we just say alternative and grungy yeah. and and that's, that's kind of what was going moody on at and, age and yeah. angsty and Nirvana and Alice yeah. in Chains, yeah, early nineties, Stone Temple Pilots, hundred percent, yeah. 100%. yeah. Um, but then also, I think one thing that we, I guess, benefited from was having an older brother that was three years older than us, and uh, you know he was listening to stuff far beyond where we were and and a little more alternative and obscure. And we would sneak in, you know, we'd sneak into his room and borrow tapes, or we'd hear music coming from his room and ask what that was. I think a lot of times at first we wouldn't understand it, and then like a year later it would be our favorite band, you know, like mm-hmm. the Pixies or the Cure or Depeche Mode or something like that. Did he play music as well? Or? He played a little bit of bass, yeah. Um, but he was always into, into filmmaking with his buddies. While we were playing in bands, he was out running around the neighborhood with... With Jeremy. You know, yeah, with Jeremy in a Super 8 and VHS... I guess we should say your older brother is Macon Blair, who has starred in all three of Jeremy Saulnier's films and uh, uh, is the star, is the leading star in, in Blue Ruin. Right. And uh, quite an actor, quite an incredible presence. Yeah, we grew up knowing he, yeah, he had a special gift as well, and, but it was not until the first ten minutes of Blue Ruin that we, um, when we just were starting to work with the rough cut, and the first couple minutes we know it's our brother, and then a few moments later I'd forgotten all about him as a, you know, we were just in the story and kind of impressed and shocked by his performance. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible performance. Yeah, he's always been kind of the, the, I guess, the kind of character actor approach where he's the 
you know, got this this smaller part in a, you know several several short films, but that was the first time seeing him carry a film that was was pretty impressive. Yeah, he has very expressive eyes. He has a large, very expressive eyes. I'm enjoying getting to know him as an actor just mm-hmm. in these handful of films. Um, but I want to, I guess I want to get you somehow to infectious uh, organisms. Uh, I guess we should bounce you back to college. And yeah. uh, how did you meet the, uh, the front men of this group? Yeah, I think, um, I think there was a time in music that was probably very normal for 17, 18 year olds where You've got a good dose of rock and roll growing up, and there's so many other things out there worth exploring. The high school we went to was very diverse. Um, there's a lot of go-go music, which is sort of a, a, a percussive-based dance, uh, very collaborative call-and-response sort of uh, style of music that's really contained just to the D.C. area and kind of spills into Virginia and Maryland. Um, Big fans of Trouble Funk and Trouble EU Funk and, and EU Chuck and Brown and, and, and the yep. Soul Searchers. Doing the Butt by EU was... Uh, made it into the School Days soundtrack, Spike Lee movie. And that might be one of the sort of more com- commercially successful go-go songs, but it's a big sort of subculture, or a smaller subculture there. Very sort of spare, stripped-down funk. Uh, really exactly. Great dance music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we explored that towards the end of high school, and that uh, opened up doors to hip-hop music. And as we got to college, you were sort of self-teaching yourself a lot of jazz, um, which... In, yeah, and... Uh, and Hip-hop production as yeah. well, I guess. And I was studying some jazz and some classical, and these styles lend themselves towards the some production techniques of like the early 90s hip-hop, where jazz artists were sampled or classical artists were sampled. So we took those interests um, and sort of yeah fused a, a, a live hip-hop uh, sort of backing band from that and then kept ourselves open and available to find the right frontman or the right... Oh, really? You, start, you started off as the backing group before you had the... Well, more like really working on hip-hop beats in a live band situation without having vocalists. We just oh, wanted right. to... Finding that sound and... And think of it almost like a like a pr- producer or yeah, like a DJ. Yeah. Um, like DJ Shadow maybe around yeah, the same time? Like let's, like, let's work on beats. Yeah. Um, but again, as a live band. Um, and these were with some of the guys that we grew up with that came down to college with us. And... Um, how did we meet those guys? They were, they were. I think we just we kind of put the word out, and they had the word out as well that you know they were they started with a DJ, you know, producer setup, and they were looking. This group of MC, MCs were looking to to do something with a live band, and we were kind of looking for the same thing, and didn't put didn't put out like a one ad or anything like that. I think we just had a mutual friend that that ran into them and said, you know, I know some guys that have a band pretty much intact, ready to go, and. You know, they hooked us up, and I think we just jammed one night, and that was pretty much it. It was, it was, we were off and running. Sometimes 
I'm scared that I'm too young to die. It's only human to cry. Sometimes I wonder why the days come before the months do. And when tomorrow confronts you, will you be the one to let it pass on by? by. Let it pass on by, by, don't let it pass on by Sometimes I'm scared that I'm too young to die It's only human to cry Sometimes I wonder why the days come before the months do And when tomorrow confronts you, would you be the one to Let it pass on by, by, let it pass on by, by Don't let it pass on by Charles Connors, the incident, blood spills, steam the basin. Head slumped slightly under, recovering thoughts, race against the room's temperature. Unanswered questions, responded, his insanity. Frozen callbacks to escape, adjacent to life, they once harnessed the beauty of time in it. Prominent in the role played perfectly, his birth ceramic and death, a panoramic fish eye lands into mankind's miniature garden of Eden, still the portraits of breathing. His eye blinks, disappointed for his failures. The night thickens, passing bittersweet sensations. The moment he awakened, a cold hand embraced his cry. The worries fade out signals. His body frozen, outstretched arm. Still holds on to the reasons hidden inside his suicide. Suicide, 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 suicide. Sometimes I'm scared that I'm too young to die. It's only human to cry. Sometimes I wonder why the days come before the months do. And when tomorrow confronts you, would you be the one to let it pass on by? by. Let it pass on by, by, don't let it pass on by. Sometimes I'm scared that I'm too young to die. It's only human to cry. Sometimes I wonder why the days come before the months do. And when tomorrow confronts you, would you be the one to let it pass on by, by? Let it pass on by, by, don't let it pass on by, by. covered his flesh moments from death i looked inside my son's eyes and asked oh why my child had to die before i realized i should have seen it coming takes more than loving dozens of times i tried to reach out but my arms weren't long enough and hands weren't strong enough to hold on so i asked son hold on to your memories of blue skies road trips with your mom forgetting everything and this world has gone wrong your favorite song i'm engaged what's going on felt like just yesterday i held you on my arm not long ago i watched you take your first step Searched your whole life trying to find a purpose Like thin ice, a delicate surface Without you, my own breath seems worthless I die a thousand times just to see your footprints In the sands of time, under sunshine It should have been me A tree should never outlive the life of its own seed Hearts bleed, one eternity 911, emergency, 30 steps to perfection Why did it have to come to this? Get my attention Sometimes I'm scared that I'm too young to die. It's only human to cry. Sometimes I wonder why the days come before the months do. And when tomorrow confronts you, would you be the one to let it pass on by? by. Let it pass on by, by. Don't let it pass on by. Sometimes I'm scared that I'm too young to die. It's only human to cry. Sometimes I wonder why.
Sometimes I'm scared that I'm too young to die. It's only human to cry. Sometimes I wonder why the days come before the months do. And when tomorrow confronts you, would you be the one to let it pass on by? by. Let it pass on by, by. Don't let it pass on by. Sometimes I'm scared that I'm too young to die. It's only human to cry. Sometimes I wonder why the days come before the months do. And when tomorrow confronts you, would you be the one to let it pass on by? by. Let it pass on by, by. Don't let it pass on by. Sometimes I'm scared that I'm too young to die. It's only human to cry. Sometimes I wonder why the days come before the months do. And when tomorrow confronts you, would you be the one to how did the infectious organisms uh, sort of run its course? True story? <laughs> yeah, can, please. Give them the true story. Uh, very few people are listening, so I wouldn't worry about <laughs> say, say anything. It's yeah. a good story uh, <laughs> that, we're, that we're fine with sharing. It, it, we, um, we had a lot of energy and a lot of time and a lot of momentum, and so we got things going pretty quick and got on the road, and we're kind of touring nonstop after a short bit of time. We got to open up for larger acts like outcast and run dmc and um the roots hieroglyphics and hieroglyphics black star g love and special sauce and <laughs> uh, and the black eyed peas and there was a oh, medesky martin wood medesky martin wood and um all seem like you know perfect uh, compliments to uh, what yeah. you're doing yeah. it's like late 90s early 2000s That's the audience you should be playing for mm-hmm. right. a lot of festivals and, and outdoor things like that um and there was a night in Sh- in charlotte north carolina with the black eyed peas and this was black eyed peas pre-Fergie and pre... Um, they were a kind of scrappy, young hip-hop band that a lot of people wouldn't recognize right now. Yeah, I, and, I, I uh, had that first record, very sort of Jungle Brothers, yeah. you know, Tribe Called Quest kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. And they kind of took us under their wing, so to speak, that night and, and were advising us on certain things. I mean, we had a little van and a trailer attached, parked next to their big tour bus. And, you know, they were, <laughs> they were obviously um, a few steps ahead of us. Um, but Will I Am in particular um, encouraged one of our vocalists and sort of the maybe the leader, so to speak, of our band at the time, that that this touring lifestyle or this sort of band in the van on the road is really tough to sustain itself, if not impossible. And said, I would suggest you guys switch gears, get off the road, and get in the studio, maybe with an outside producer, um, find some money to do it right, and start recording some hits and get your hits on the radio. And then get back on the road when there's money and demand and, and so to speak. And we were immediately divided as a band because we, as the sort of the, the backup band of it, we were in our early 20s, we were having the time of our lives. And we just wanted to keep staying on the road and playing shows that were getting bigger and bigger. And that seemed like a logical path for us to take. And um, at the time, bringing an outside producer and... Also, it just felt like it would be a calculated thing, like stop doing what you're doing and then try to make some hits, you know, and that wasn't the... The approach of this band whatsoever you know it was definitely like a kind of a, a different scene where we were trying to appeal to and then all of a sudden there was this conversation that we need to appeal to a different audience and uh and that just felt like it would be kind of forced and maybe a bit and to their credit and that's a decision that the black eyed peas <laughs> did make <laughs> that's, that's, that's absolutely <laughs> what a couple they years did. later they the world got to know them kind of as they are now with with fergie as a new member uh, I mean, back in the time in this conversation, they just had a beautiful, talented female co-vocalist named Kim. And she was nondescript, but an incredible performer. And they, they realized they wanted to switch gears and make business decisions, you know, to further their career along. Yeah, so that literally divided us. I think we broke up 
six weeks later <laughs> and already started thinking about our next band and thinking about... Uh, Jean-Baptiste from the band went on to some success? With a lot of... With the members of the Black Eyed Peas, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Kinda, he's part of that, that, that camp now and has a lot of writing credits on a lot of their albums and has went on to write and produce for other artists, yeah, in that same sort of world. Oh. And maybe a bit bigger. Some Britney Spears and Madonna credits and stuff. Yeah. So and clearly a different <laughs> path there. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, I mean, I, I guess it shows that you're onto something there with that band, you know. That, yeah, that, uh, there were there was a lot of uh, uh, excitement and, uh, and and good friction there, which you took to your next band, which was uh, much different and seemed to to grow organically uh, out of uh, your relationships. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> completely accurate. Yeah. <laughs> so East Hundred, uh, it's. Uh, uh, I, I recently looked at a documentary that was made at the end of East 100's career. I guess you were together from around 2004 to 2012. 12, that sounds right. 2012, and at the end of the career, there was a, uh, a documentary that was made uh, named after a tune from your last EP, uh, Fools... Uh, kings and Queens. Fools, Kings, and Queens can still be found on Vimeo, sort of capturing the, uh, the last leg of your band's uh, uh, a moment there. But but uh, it was uh, quite an exciting band, and uh, can you can you tell me about how that came together? That was, um, I guess, early two thousand three. We maybe started working on some demos. Um, Will Brell and I pretty much started out as a as a three piece. Um, Will and I were getting more into uh, like studio production, learning how to really record and and put together songs in, on the you know in the studio as opposed to band in the room. Approach er, and, early on, you made an appeal to John McIntyre from uh, the band Tortoise. We did, yeah, the great uh, Chicago uh, post rock giant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was just a shot in the dark. That was um, our second EP. We were looking for someone to mix that, and we were huge fans of John McIntyre and all his uh, projects, C and Cake and um, Tortoise, and, and loved the sound of those records. And uh, you know, we mixed some of the um, Stereolab records as well, and. I think one night it was just a drunken email got shot off and like we would love to work with you and then the, literally the next morning it's like sure come to Chicago and we're like okay we're going to Chicago to work with John McIntyre and that was incredible uh, so he just mixed the second second EP and then um, that kind of set us up for our for our full length which we uh, recorded with Brian McTeer what's the title of that again Passenger Passenger, yeah. Passenger. I think that, the first half of that band was a sort of awkward um, phase of like you said, learning how to record and produce ourselves, learning how, you know, capturing the sounds and the atmospheres we want ourselves in the studio, but still feeling the need to rely on someone else, some other professional, so to speak, with a professional whatever, room or equipment to really help finish it. And we were never quite fully comfortable doing it ourselves, but I think it was kind of necessary to go through that to now be able to want to be the only ones recording ourselves almost you know we feel comfortable enough now having gone through that that world of, of playing and recordings and bands that's led us to the film work now that you know we, we'd like to be in control of the recording of it yeah knowing that the sound you're trying to capture and being able to actually get it you know that, mm -hmm. that's actually easier said than done what, um, what did brian McTeer bring to the uh, the equation he's uh uh, quite a well thought of producer. Worked with Mazarin and uh, I'm, I'm, I, uh, a long list of credits. Uh, oh, yeah. Many people Sharon in Philadelphia and beyond. We're on drugs. Brian's a great band therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but he's become a great friend and um, you know, a neighbor, and we we still spend a lot of time with. And 
there were very old relationships in the band. I mean, Brooke put the band together with his girlfriend at the time, and by the time we recorded with Brian, it was Brooke's ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But we're still in the band together. So you had a, you know, but both brothers and a romantic relationship right. in yeah. this band. A lot, a lot to deal with. I can see where you might need a, you know, a, a psychotherapist yeah. to be thrown in there. Um, and men and women and, and our oldest, um, Dave Sunderland, bass players, who we grew up with, and I put every single band together with Dave, the only bass player I really had played with. So and he was an infectious as and well. And he was an infectious. So these old relationships um, and these sort of these tumultuous, like, mid-20s, getting closer to your 30s, um, a lot of, you know, still figuring things out. And it, it seems it's, in, it's my, challenging. in my experience playing in bands, especially around that time, uh, there's an urgency, I think, just in, in young people to figure out, you know, where they're going to set their feet in life. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of urgency in advance in their late 20s to, to make it and really make uh, a, a, a commercial go of it. And it seemed like that stress was within your band there Absolutely. Uh, somewhere. Because you, you really had all the pieces. It was an incredibly good-looking band who... You know, a very attractive uh, lead singer and, uh, you know, well-dressed and a very, you guys obviously had, you know, years and years of experience in, as a musicians underneath it. So I, I could see uh, the package all seemed to be there. It seemed like I heard you, you got a lot of people saying you should move to L.A., that this band would have no problem making it in, in L.A. <laughs> we did. We did get a lot. And that does seem very believable to me. I could imagine, uh, you know. Uh, uh, that, that all the, the all the sort of p- uh, pieces of, of something to sell were, were there with that group. The music was was wonderful as well, um, but that that frustration, I guess, because I've seen that documentary, it, it, it uh, really seems it like it's set well. in. Yeah, yeah. I think we're also at a point where, yeah, maybe we're all trying to figure out where we're going to land. We're trying to do that, you know. The five of us keeping us all on the exact same page for eight or nine years was difficult enough, and then. I think we found ourselves in this place where we we're individually holding on to ideas really tightly, you know, and maybe that kind of put a put a damper on things a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, like where just just kind of writing, having fun. Like I think, yeah, maybe we felt the pressure was on a little bit. You know, we're in our mid, you know, getting into our late twenties. Like something's got to happen. We got to do something. So every decision felt maybe a bit bigger than it needed to be, mm-hmm. and that can maybe squeeze a little life out of it. And uh, and I think we naturally. We're starting to go in different directions musically. We were kind of, you know, someone to stay in one place. Some folks were looking at different things. And um, so it wasn't this huge explosion. It was just like we, we found ourselves all drifting in slightly different directions. And the idea was let's call it a day before it gets dramatic or, you know, or we just kind of stumble to the finish line. Let's, let's go out with a bang and um, put out one more record and, and then call it a day and, and be kind of in control of how it how we ended it and that, and that felt really good in that respect it was definitely bittersweet and sad to end that band but at least there's some control over it and it the black eyed peas didn't end it <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> he kept them out of it
nostalgic to, to hear three, what, six years have passed now or uh, since the band uh, broke up? Six, yeah. Or not, what would it be? Four, four years, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Do you. Do you imagine that you might uh, ever have a, a band again in, in, in such a manner? I don't, I don't know if we're on the same page. I would like to. Um, you know, much less uh, time-intensive you know, ways somehow. You're playing with Joey Joey Sweeney these days, aren't you? I was. No, I was for about a year. And um, such a big group that Joey put together is a lot of fun. But we started with like a 12-piece and had a hard time. <laughs> it's just scheduling-wise, logistics, make, keeping it sort of um, efficient. Um, I think Joey's still playing. And, yeah, I think that was fun to be part of a big ensemble. I would like to go back and, and find a, a small of a little partnership or trio perhaps that i that i could to um keep things efficient like i said how about you brooke um I, i've really fallen in love with the, the recording side of things and, and trying to get better at that in production and uh i do enjoy recording on my own quite a bit i've, I've done some solo stuff that i've released and um have you produced other people's projects at all i haven't that's something that i, I keep kind of thinking about whether i'm cut out for that or not um you know part of it's just it's just I just enjoy like kind of the, the solitude sometimes of, of just working on my own, letting things go where they, you know, where they're going to end up, and, and experimenting. You know, maybe yeah, if I found someone that that I felt like I could I could bring something to, you know, um, I don't think I would I would ever do it just really as to make a to make a buck. You know, it would have to be something a really good creative fit where I feel like I could I could maybe put my fingerprint on it a little bit. Um, or they would, you know, if someone was interested in, in what I do. But, um, yeah, but also I still like getting in a room and playing. It just, it's, this is kind of where my head's at right now. I guess so many years of playing in bands, this is just a whole different approach of, of trying to make things sound a certain way and and uh, get better at mixing. Um, and so I get to apply that to, to the film work we do, which is keeping me pretty, pretty uh, satisfied and happy. <laughs> Have you heard any recent records you've, uh, you've liked, uh, either of you? I think the most the most recent for me that was sort of a complete album beginning to end was this guy Rodrigo Amarante that was in a band called Little Joy a couple of years ago. Um, he's a Brazilian musician that's based in Los Angeles, as far as I know. <laughs> sort of a guitar player, multi instrumentalist, and um, this he put together this recent album. I think his first solo album called Cavallo. It's just a a very sparse, atmospheric, minimal. He sings a little in, in Portuguese and a little in French, a little in English, and just sort of drifts into different moods and um, worlds. That's been a favorite recently. It does seem like there's been a lot of energy in South America, mm -hmm. rock recently. How about you, Broken Seed? Uh, I was trying to think. Um, I guess one that I keep coming back to, and this was released a couple years back that just still has not gotten old for me, is um, a Nashville-based singer-songwriter named Jesse Balin. Huh. And she did a record a couple of years ago called Little Spark, which, uh, in addition to being really great songs, just the production on it is incredible. They used all old vintage gear and old mixing desks where you only had like left, right, and center, and everything with the tape. And they had some great Nashville session players, some some really great lap steel and, and string arrangements. And she has a really cool voice, and the songs are amazing. And it's also just a headphone album. You can there's something new every time you listen to it. So that's when I keep coming back to. Um, we're right. listening to so much film music now yeah. as well, you know, for sort of homework, but also inspiration, and, and it's enjoyable for us. Uh, David Wingo just did Midnight Special, and Daniel Hart, two great Texas-based composers we've just become fans of, and 
we like their movies, but we also just listen listen to their scores again with headphones just to relax. So that's great. Yeah. Uh, well, well, thanks so much for 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 coming out. I uh, really appreciate. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for having us. One, two, three, four. That's it for our show. Thanks again to WPRB Princeton and Allied Marketing. As this podcast drops, Sonia's The Green Room, featuring the music of the Blair Brothers, is playing at theaters nationwide. You can find out more about the Blair Brothers and their music at blairbrothersmusic.com. Starting in May, I'll be hosting four double features at Andrew's Video Vault at the Rotunda in West Philly every second Thursday of the month, beginning with a Hal Ashby double feature. Find out more at armcinema25.org. Catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.